Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. If you woke up this morning, you probably thought it was either late October around Halloween or late December around Christmas. I mean, it was 50 degrees this morning, but it is, in fact, a week after Easter. Uh, Do not let the weather fool you. Well, this morning we are, we're going to be talking about Easter. Easter was last week. It came, it went, eggs were hunted, candy was eaten, men's lavender shirts were put back in the closet to not be used again to the next year. Easter was last week, but, but what about today? How, how does, how does a, a, a one day a year religious celebration help inform us on how to live our lives for the rest of the year? Or, or, or should it? Is Easter really meant to be a one day a year religious celebration? Or, or is it possibly the entryway into something much more grand Pastor Keith reminded us last week that Easter is, is not seasonal. It's not a day, but rather it's an everyday awareness. In the coming days, we are going to begin a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm really excited. Hopefully by the end of uh, this month, we'll begin the study of 1 Corinthians. But we, we felt led from now till then to explore how how Easter made its way from the city of Jerusalem to uh, the impact it provided around uh, the Mediterranean, how it hit people in, in Corinth and, and, and uh, um, uh, Ephesus and, and, and Philippi, all these cities in that part of the world, and, and, and how that message somehow made its way in a boat and crossed an entire ocean and made it to, to Central America and to North America and 2,000 years later, we are here in the city of New Orleans on April 8th, 2018, talking about an event that happened so long ago. Different culture, different time, different language, different people, yet the impact of Easter is still being felt. So how did that happen? How, how do we get from first century Jerusalem to 21st century America? So before we dive into 1 Corinthians the next two, three weeks, we're going to spend a a couple of weeks, two, three weeks actually, talking about Easter, what Easter unleashed, how Easter informs our lives moving forward, and trying to answer the question, how and why did the gospel move and get to the city of New Orleans, to your front door, all the way from the city of Jerusalem? Our text for this morning is Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, we're going to read verses 44 through 49. I'll give you a second to get there. going to be referencing most of the chapter in Luke 24. We're going to visit that first Easter Sunday and learn from it the lessons that the first witnesses of Easter have to tell us. So this is Luke chapter 24, starting on verse 44. Luke writes, Then he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us ears to hear and that you would give us softened hearts to respond. Illumine your word to our minds, O Lord, and penetrate our hearts with it. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So if I were to ask you, what did Jesus accomplish by his resurrection? I mean, that's, that's what Easter is, right? We celebrate Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, physically rising from a tomb. Not spiritually, not, not, not symbolically, not, not, not religiously, but physically. His dead body being reanimated. To a living body, to an actual, tangible, physical, real body. This is what we celebrate at Easter. The purpose behind that, the, the, the means that accomplished that. But, but what was accomplished? If, if you answered that question by being raised from the dead, Jesus secured our salvation. Well, you know, he claimed to be God and he claimed that one of the ways he was going to prove he was God was he was going to be raised from the dead. So therefore his message of salvation through belief in that resurrection, I guess, is true. If you were to answer it that way, you would be correct. If you were to say Jesus reconciled us to God by being resurrected from the dead, by being raised from the dead. That too would get you a star in your test. We were enemies of God. The Bible says we were, we were hostile to God and Christ in his body reconciled us to himself through his death, burial, and resurrection. His resurrection now gives us entryway into a relationship with the God that we needed to be reconciled with. So you would be correct in saying that the resurrection accomplished reconciliation to God. You would also be correct in saying that the resurrection accomplished Jesus freeing us from the power and fear of death. For a guy to walk on earth to, and say, I'm going to be raised from the dead and do it. And then say, if you believe in what I did, that will be you too. There really is no fearing death, is there? There's nothing to be afraid of that inevitable enemy that's coming to us all. So if you're to answer it that way, Jesus accomplished a, a, a possibility for us to be freed from the power of fear and death. And all those are correct answers. There's a whole host of other things you could say. But based on this text, based on moments after the first Easter... 
The Sunday morning of the resurrection day. What did Jesus say was fulfilled? Well, let's look back at this passage and I want to draw you into something significant that Jesus emphasizes as something that's fulfilled. Look back at verse 44. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, in other words, in the entire Old Testament, in the entire Bible that his disciples and those living at that time would have had, these things must be fulfilled. I want to emphasize this. This is coming from Jesus' mouth days, weeks after he's been raised from the dead. He's wanting to draw our attention to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And this is not the only place that Jesus emphasizes the written scriptures. That Jesus emphasizes the Old Testament message of what was going to happen in Easter happened in Easter as it was foretold. Look at the beginning of chapter 21. Moments after the resurrection of the Christ. Chapter 21 verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Jump down to verse 22. So after this this encounter with the women and the angel, women go back and tell the rest of the disciples, not just the 11, there are probably more people there. And um, uh, a couple of them uh, find find themselves traveling from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus, and and they're they're talking about this. They're they're trying to process uh, not just the events that have happened, primarily the death of Christ, but they're trying to process that through through the testimony of these women that they're going, hey, we went to the tomb, and and he's not there, and and so they're just talking amongst themselves, these two guys, and and all of a sudden, this dude just shows up, and he starts asking them questions, and they start answering. When they start having this conversation, what they don't realize is they're talking to Jesus. So this story picks up back in the uh, bottom of uh, 24, verse 22. Luke 24, verse 22. 
So these guys tell Jesus, who's appeared to them, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I share a thought by Yvonne Roberts in his book, God's Big Picture. If you've not read this book and you're a member of this church, you should have read this book. This is part of our Summer Bible Jam a couple of years ago. Um, I won't tell anyone if you go buy one in the bookstore and read it. Uh, but this should be mandatory reading for anyone that comes to this church. Great little biblical theology. Um, Read a couple of thoughts from him. He says, The Bible covers a great deal of ground, but there is one supreme subject that binds it all together. Jesus Christ and the salvation God offers through him. That is not just true of the, Old Test- of the New Testament, but of the Old Testament as well. Many Christians have an idea that God decided to send Jesus to earth only after his first plan had failed. His original idea, plan A was to give people an opportunity to become his people by obeying his law. But that failed. So he scratched his head and came up with another idea, plan B, to save people by grace through, death of Je- through the death of Jesus Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. God had always planned to send Jesus. The whole Bible, from beginning to end, points to him. In this passage, Jesus stresses a particular reality of what's taken place on that first Easter morning. He wants to make sure that we do not miss this one crucial point of the Easter story. And that point is this, the death of burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of a plan designed and executed by God that spanned thousands of years of human history, weaved its purpose through the lives of millions of people, affected countless cultures, nations, kingdoms, governments, and people groups, and that plan continues today. Friend, if you're here for the first time, maybe you visited Lakeview Christian Center a couple times, maybe you knew the Christian faith, maybe you don't ascribe to any particular faith, um, or don't ascribe to faith at all, you need to understand something about the message of the Bible. The Bible is not a religious book that contains made-up stories created by some French aristocrats in a smoke-filled room somewhere in the Middle Ages. That is not what the Bible contains. The Bible contains verifiable, historically accurate information 
And the most important piece of the historical information that the Bible contains is that some 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Which, if, if, if true, it's pretty darn impressive. But what's more impressive? What's more compelling? That the historical person called Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead? Or that the historical person called Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead as part of a plan written in history years, millennia before he was born? The message of Easter, the message of Jesus of Nazareth, what we call the gospel, is a message from history for history. If you're a Christian in this room, this is massively important for you to understand. The message of Easter, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that it secures for those who would place their faith in Him... It's not just a message to be received, but it's a message to be shared. And that's been the plan all along. Thousands of years before the resurrection of Christ, in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God calls this man by the name of Abram. Changes his name later to Abraham. He calls Abram. To serve him. Abram was a, an Egyptian moon, moon god worshiper. A pagan man. Calls him to, 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 to serve him. To know the living God. And tells him this in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. To the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hundreds of years after the life of Abraham, God delivers a message to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. And he says this, the Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And just days after the first Easter morning, after the day that Christ was raised from the dead, as the disciples are, are, are standing there rubbing their eyes in sheer amazement and wonder at, at the sight of the risen Christ. The physical risen Christ stands before them. Jesus utters these words to them. Luke 24 verse 47. The repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Thousands of years before the resurrection. When God made the promise to Abraham. To bless all the nations of the world through him. He had in mind this exact meeting. 
between Jesus and his disciples. He had in mind that exact commission he was going to send them on. Friends, I'm spending a good deal of time on this. Because the kind of impact that Jesus had in mind when he called disciples to himself was nothing short than salvation on a global scale. A message to all people, in all lands, for all history, until every corner of the planet has heard that salvation by grace and through faith in the risen Christ is available to all those who place their trust in him. That's what's happening in this first Easter moment. Not just that God's plan of salvation has been fulfilled, but that God's plan of salvation is about to go global. And that's been the plan all along. God's not formulating the plan as he goes. He's not reacting to the events of the day. God has interwoven his, his perfect wisdom from before the foundation of the world, desiring that the message of the gospel be preached to all nations for all time. If you're a Christian in this room, this should be deeply and profoundly encouraging. Why? Because it's a fun fact? No. Because... Part of the message of Easter was fulfilled at Easter. Part of the message of Easter was fulfilled at Easter. The prophecy that Christ would die and be raised from the dead was fulfilled at Easter. Thousands of years of human history leading to this moment that was planned, that was promised, that was prophesied, that we were told was going to happen, happened. God has shown himself to be sovereign and faithful to his word. And if he fulfilled that part of the message of Easter, arguably the hard part, raising someone from the dead... That's pretty hard to do. If he filled that part of the message, if he fulfilled that part of the message, he's shown himself to be trustworthy and faithful and sovereign and powerful to fulfill the other part of the message. The proclamation of the forgiveness of sins to all nations. If you're a Christian in this room and when you hear the topic of missions and evangelism and sharing your faith and talking to non-believers or just speaking about your faith, you might get overwhelmed, you might get scared, you might not know what to say. Well, here's a promise in Scripture. That God will fulfill the mission he's called you to be a participant of. By virtue of the faithfulness he displayed in the first part of the Easter mission, which is raising Christ from the dead, he will in fact fulfill the second part of the mission, which is bring the gospel to the nations. 
At Easter, God guaranteed the success he sent the church on. At Easter, God has guaranteed that the church will in fact be successful in the delivery of this message to the world. That Easter morning, that very first Easter morning, God did not hope that his message of salvation would get out. He unleashed it. And he secured its success. So as you go out and share the faith that resides in your heart, take heart in that truth. God has secured the success of his mission. But let's go back to the text. That sounds great and all. Let's go back to the text and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They're in some room upstairs. It's locked. They're scared. This Jesus guy they followed for three years. He died. Like he said he would, but he died. And then he shows up in their presence. And they're probably standing there rubbing their eyes. Just what in the world is going on? And then they hear. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Really Jesus? All nations? We have to share this mission to all nations? The whole world, all of it. I mean, I get it that back in the first century, they really hadn't discovered the whole American continent, so, so I mean, the world was a lot smaller, but still, it was pretty big. Put yourself in their shoes. You, well, you know, you did come back from the dead. You, you, a couple weeks ago, you fed a whole bunch of people. You know, you've casted out demons and done miracles. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, it's, it's tough sailing. I get it. But hey, I mean, you're going to run point, right? Like, like you're, you're the head of the spear, right? Like, we're going to come, come behind you, and then you're just going to go, and we're going to follow you, right? You are witnesses of these things. What would your reaction have been? If you're sitting there, a first century Jewish fisherman... On the lowest class of the social strata, no to little education, despised by your ethnicity, not liked because you hung around with a weird guy for three years, and this guy tells you, now you get to share my message to to the nations. Would that have emboldened you? Or would that have freaked you out a little bit? I mean, it's a big job, right? Right? It's a big job. Can, can you imagine a social function with one of the apostles? I don't know. It's a, a you know school PTA meeting in the first century, and you know uh, Peter walks up, and there's two people talking, and they're just kind of introducing themselves. And one guy says to the other, uh, "So, uh, you know, what do you do?" And this guy says, "Well, I'm a assistant to the Roman Senator Claudius." Oh, that's respectable and noble. How about you? What do you do? And then this guy says, "Oh, well, you know, I um, 
My family owns the best vineyard this side of Jerusalem. Oh, well, that's, that's you know, pretty noble. And then they look at the guy dressed in like you know, really poor, tattered clothes, not really smart, but they have to kind of welcome him. And they say, um, um, uh, Peter, was it? Uh, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm conquering the world with the message of Jesus Christ. It's a big task. Big shoes to fill. Our commission is that of global dominance in some way. It's more than the disciples could have handled. It's more than you or I can handle. So, what did God do about it? Did he just send us off and abandon us and hope for the best? Friends, this is all part of a plan. It's been all part of a plan. And God's a pretty good planner. So look at what he did to continue his plan. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The evangelist Luke records this same event in the book of Acts. He wrote both books and and he words it a little bit different and it's very helpful. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Speaking of the same account, Luke writes, Jesus telling his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what did God do? How did God ensure that that his global message would succeed? God promised us power. God empowered us. He imbued us with his power. But more than that, he is coming with us. God has superseded our limitations by accompanying us to do the message he's asked us to take. Friends, we we, we are prone. We are prone to forget about the power of the gospel. About the power in the gospel. And the power that accompanies the preaching of the gospel. But these events of Easter help remind us, they help us remember that the gospel is in fact good news, but it's more than good news. It's powerful, spirit-empowered news. The call to be Christ's witnesses to all the earth is a call to partake in the supernatural. How, 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 How is that? Well, the church's mission begins with a supernatural call of a supernatural God to fulfill the supernatural purpose of preaching a supernatural message empowered by God's supernatural spirit. The disciples got a pretty good hand. They got help. God promised them his very presence. God promised them not only success, but he would see success take place for he would come with us. You know, superhero movies are all the rage. Just this week, the most recent superhero blockbuster movie called Black Panther 
earned a total of $659.3 million and is now officially the third top grossing movie of all time in the American box office. Worldwide, it's like number 10 or something. Six of the 10 top grossing movies of all time here in America, six of them are superhero movies. They relate to superheroes. And if I were to take a guess as to why that is, I would probably say that it's more than just the entertainment value. Some of them are pretty good movies. I've seen some of them. I know they're good movies. But I think something else is going on. Entertainment is is certainly a reflection of what we value. But I would argue that entertainment is a reflection of what we yearn for. Pastor Keith spent the past several weeks reminding us of how our modern culture has lost its value for the transcendent things. Things that, that, that are outside our, our, our imminent frame. Th- th- things that are outside the, 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 the filter of right here, right now. Of, of what, what serves me right here, right now. What increases me right here, right now. And the, 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 the transcendent, the, this idea of, of things that are outside uh, of, of, of my proximity. Those things are not as important. But ironically, as much as that's true and as much as our culture wants to claim it isn't concerned with the transcendent things, every now and then, we see culture grasping for the transcendent in unexpected places. Listen to this thought by C.S. Lewis. This is why I think that's the case. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And then he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's my opinion that the, that, that the reason why people flock to these superhero movies or, or, or to, to these movies about a hero, about somebody who rescues, has everything to do with this. Somehow, these movies are fulfilling a desire that's deeply rooted in our hearts. And the interesting thing is that that desire is not being fulfilled by, by, by just the expression of the fantasy of power or of, or of you know, uh, uh, fame or, or, or this or that. But the desire that's being fulfilled is the desire of salvation. More specifically... The desire that's being fulfilled is the desire to see salvation take place. The message that all these movies and books and shows have in common is that of salvation. Someone is in distress, the Superman comes in and saves them. Some, some alien thing comes and invades the world. Uh, uh, the hero gives his life to save the world. There's a cruel and oppressive regime and a hero arises and makes justice happen. And we celebrate and we cheer and we get behind 
those thoughts, those ideas, those movies. There's something about witnessing salvation takes place that draws us. And friends, there is no greater message of salvation that the word has ever heard than that of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For one, because it's actually true. It's not fiction. It's not Hollywood scripted. It happened, planned, in history. The salvation that is preached in the gospel of Christ is a salvation from the curse of sin and the power of death itself. And there is no greater enemy we can think of than death. There's no greater bondage known to man than the oppressive control of sin in the lives of those who are under its bondage. And the gospel presents you the story of a man who defeated both. And by his resurrection, he invites you not just to partake of the message, but to give it out. This is the call of Luke chapter 24. Superman has nothing on Jesus. Do you want to save people? Do you want to help save people? Christian in this room, is, 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 is the salvation of a human being something that interests you? Do you feel compelled to participate in an activity that would save someone? The passage we've been looking at, Luke 24, reminds us that that's the church's mission. That's God's planned mission for the church to take salvation from one place to the other. That's what Easter ushered in. That's what Easter unleashed. Not just salvation for those who believe, but salvation for those who would believe. And in between both, you stand. And you can bring the salvation to those who would believe by sharing of the salvation that you received. So how do we do this? You don't wear a cape, obviously. I mean, you don't, you know, wear colorful spandex costumes. I mean, we don't do that. How do we do this? Some thoughts by Mr. Russell Moore in his book, Onward. He writes, Jesus will build his church with us or without us. But if we are going to be faithful to him, we must share his mission. This means we don't just talk about lost people. This is a novel idea right here. We talk to them. And we don't talk to them as as enlightened life coaches promising an improved future. But as crucified sinners offering a new birth. So the mission is to send the gospel, the message of salvation to the world. How is the mission done? Performed, executed by talking to people about the new birth, about repentance and the promise of God that salvation is available to them if they would repent. 
But this is where most of us stop. This is where most of us, I don't know, at least I'll speak for myself, but, but this is where I, I get this concept intellectually that salvation is a good thing. But sometimes in the past, I've asked myself, does salvation actually do anything? I mean, I get it sends people to heaven. That's a big deal. But, but I mean, does it do anything? Like, it's, it's so nebulous. It's so, it's so just out in the air. What do we believe the new birth accomplishes? What do we believe, what power do we believe it resides in the new birth? What do you think happens to a person who is born again? As I think sometimes my failure in taking this message is, I just don't think that this person's going to change. Or maybe I don't think this person can change. I stop trusting in the power of this gospel when I see this person and I say, well, I don't know, God. I mean, I can see you save that dude, but that one, no. I just, he's, he's, he's beyond your reach, God. He's too far gone, God. We don't say that, but our fear in bringing this message of salvation is based on that. But this is where Mr. Moore, Dr. Moore helps us. I found this quote, and this is just absolutely incredible. This is what the new birth does. He says, The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic right now. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star right now. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around and and seems to delight to do so. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church. And fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything needed for her onward march through space and time. The problem is we've reduced the gospel to a set of ideas. To religious orders to observe. To high lofty spiritual thoughts that that we like. And by doing that we have gutted its power. The gospel is more than a collection of ideas or moral principles or even religious rules to follow, observe, or respect. It's the news that an infinite God with infinite power has made it possible for you and me to know Him by paying a debt we owed Him, freeing us from the penalty of that debt, and welcoming us into His divine family and giving us a divine eternal purpose. The gospel's a big deal. The gospel's a big, powerful deal. 
It's sin-cleansing news. That's what the word gospel means. Good news. Why is it good? Because it's sin-cleansing news. It's shame-shattering news. It's life-restoring news. It's addiction-breaking news. It's purpose-given, hope-infusing, faith-building, future-securing, strength-giving, spirit-filled news. This is what you have the power to share with someone. When you proclaim repentance of sins, you are proclaiming the very power of God to give someone supernatural spiritual birth. When you participate in the mission that Jesus has invited you to participate, you are embarking on the most life-changing endeavor with the farthest reaching and most enduring consequences you can imagine. When the gospel is proclaimed and when it is received, the consequences are eternal. They're eternal. This message has changed the world, guys. Let me prove it to you. Look around you. Just, just go ahead. Look, look around you. Pretend you weren't sleeping. Today, April 8th of 2018, you are sitting in a church in the city of New Orleans over 2,000 years after the first Easter, as a direct result of the obedience of a small band of Christian followers. Do you realize that you're here because those disciples that saw the risen Christ told others about the risen Christ? Do do you realize that the past 2,000 years of human history has seen the world receive the goodness of the Christian way of life? Medicine, hospitals, orphanages, the abolishment of slavery, lifting up women and children to to equal positions in, in society. That's been the effect of the Christian message. And that's not the best part. The best part is lives have been transformed. Lives have been delivered from the jaws of death and sin. And we we sit here this morning listening to this guy from a third world country preach to several hundred peoples in a first world country about the obedience of a bunch of first century Jews that lived in Jerusalem. This gospel has changed the world. And it continues to change the world. And you are called and commissioned to join in that world-changing endeavor. It's no exaggeration to say that we're the fruit of their faithfulness. These guys preached in Jerusalem. The message spread to the surrounding Judea, then across the Mediterranean, then to North Africa, then to Europe, then to Asia. Sometime in the 1600s, some some dudes got in a boat, 
came on over here and there's just an explosion of faith in the message of Christ. Everywhere it went, it unleashed the forgiveness of God unto people who would believe. Friends, there is no government program, there is no university degree, there is no educational system, there is no help, self-help philosophy, no counseling methodology, no alternative lifestyle, no school, no school of thought, no book, no celebrity, no social movement, no politician, no political platform, no sports team, no heritage. There is nothing that can bring about more good to the human condition than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because more than just changing the immediate context, the immediate condition, things like poverty, pain, disease, more than doing that, it opens up an eternal life for people to live in. The enjoyment of God. This is what you're called to join in. This is the message of Easter. Not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the unleashing of this message, which you, if you're a believer, are called to participate in. So earlier I asked, how do we do this? And I just said, we talk to people, and then I left it at that. But... Let me fill those categories a little bit more. There's at least three ways we do this. By sending, by going, and by staying. How do we bring the message of Easter? How how, how does the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ invade, as Pastor Evan was talking about, life, our life, other people's life? Well, one way it does is by sending. By sending. Let me read you a passage written, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. This is some time after the resurrection. Here's a guy writing, a guy who used to murder those who delivered this message. Writing for help, for funding to deliver the message that the people he used to kill delivered. He's now a Christian. His life has been changed. And look at what he writes. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul instructs the church in Corinth, references giving the same instruction to other churches in another city in Galatia, to avail themselves of the opportunity of partnering in gospel missions with him by sending him funds. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul makes this even clearer. He says, and you Philippians... Philippians 4 verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Next week, Pastor Keith is certainly going to flesh this point out. 
I guess he will now because I said he would. Um, I don't know what you're preaching on next week, but... uh, But I wanted to remind you that you are participating in the advancement of the proclamation of the gospel every Sunday. When you come through those doors, you sit in those chairs, and you write a check to Lakeview Christian Center, you are joining in the global effort of gospel proclamation. Really? Really, Ronald? I mean, we're doing that? I mean, I thought, I thought you guys just needed more chairs. I mean, <laughs> let me show you guys a video, quick two-minute two video of how you have made this request happen. Sean Taylor, and with my wife Ruthann, we lead the Taylor clan, which consists of Caleb, Eden, Benjamin, and one on the way, Israel. I'm Sheldon Campbell. And I'm married to Sarah for five years. And we have a son, Isaiah, which is four years old. And we're expecting one, a boy, Elijah. I'm Joel Bean. I've been married to Samora for 12 years. And we have three children, Maya, Dominic, and Jacob Khalil. In the summer of 2016, we're aiming to move with our families from here in Kingston, Jamaica, to Louisville, Kentucky, to pursue pastoral studies at the Pastors College of Sovereign Grace Churches. We love the commitment of the Pastors College to train men not just to watch their doctrines, but to watch their lives. And so the training is not just theologically focused, but preparing our families for pastoral ministry. Once our studies and internship are complete, The plan is to come back here and plant a church together. We've all prayed through a sense of calling individually, and we feel that we've met at a crossroads where God has called us to this work together. Our vision is threefold. To plant gospel-centered churches to impact all spheres of influence. Two, to equip faithful men and women to build a church in Jamaica and the Caribbean. To spread this ministry of reconciliation globally. We're delighted with the prospect of partnering with SGC in a church plant because we share the vision of spreading the gospel primarily through church planting and we share their doctrinal distinctives and values. In order to do this, we need to raise a lot of money, not just for our program, but to support our families while we're there in the States. So we need your help. Will you give to help us to prepare for this work? Hope you caught the the timestamp of that video. Their plans were in the summer of 2016 to leave Jamaica, to come to the States, complete education in the pastor's college, and then at some point return to Jamaica to plant a church. Well, guess where those guys are headed next month? It's the spring of 2018. They came to the States... They went to the pastor's college. The skinny dude's name is Sheldon. We hung out with them earlier this year, the Regional Assembly of Elders. We've gotten to know these guys. We've gotten to know their love for the Lord, the trust they've placed in Christ to provide for them, to send the message of salvation to Jamaica. And guess where they're going next month? To Jamaica. And guess who helped get them there? You did. Every time 
you give to this church, some of those funds are redistributed to mission work like them. By the way, they still need help. They're fixing to start Jamaica, as much like Honduras, our, our, our countries are just politically are just really messed up and then they're just going through through, through through some issues related to the purchase of land and just a whole bunch of stuff but they're they're about to start that work every time you give you have helped folks like them let me introduce you to another family not them there we go these are the Snyders they're part of a team of three families, the Wendell Myers, the Englands, and the Snyders. The Jamaican dudes are leaving for Jamaica next month. These guys left for Thailand last month. If you came to the Mains Retreat, you, you, you met Scott. He's hung around with us for a while. He's uh, part of our region and Sovereign Grace churches. It's one of the reasons, one of the reasons I love Sovereign Grace when we unite our, our, our churches, our, 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 our forces, our, our, our funds, we can help proclaim the gospel to all nations. And again, you help accomplish this. So I want to encourage you to keep doing what you are doing. Keep sending the message of the gospel to places like Jamaica, to places like Thailand. A second way you can... Continue in gospel work is, is um, by going. So every time you give, you help send. But guess what? You can also go. Next month at the end of May, um, we are leading uh, a group uh, to go to Guadalupe, Mexico for our yearly Rancho 3M trip. Um, I was going to ask for uh, uh, volunteers to help go, but I was actually told that you guys are doing so well in responding that, that Pete had to buy extra beds as there's so many people going. That's fantastic. But opportunities like that occur in the life of the church. Opportunities like that, that avail yourself of them. I can think of people in the church... Um, Sherry, I was looking for you earlier to ask permission to share this, but I didn't find you. You're sitting over there, so I'm just going to share this. You have to love me. I'm one of your pastors. The Bible tells me, tells you to. Um, but last summer, Sherry Meyer went on a mission trip to Nigeria with the uh, Wycliffe Associates, and she helped facilitate the translation of Bibles to different uh, di- Nigerian dialects. She spent uh, how long? About a month? Yeah, four or five weeks. Many of you have done this type of work. Let me encourage you to continue doing this type of work, to give yourself with abandon to the call of salvation to the world. And finally, just one more category that you could do this is actually by staying. You you can preach the message of repentance to the nations by staying where you are. Sometimes when we hear sermons on missions, you know, we, we, we get that sense of, oh, okay, do I have to, have to sell everything I have? Do I have to be like the other two families and go to some, you know, 
desolate place in the Amazon jungle and, you know, live off, live off of, you know, eating snakes and beetles and, and, and for the glory of God. I mean, you might. That might be your calling. But I would suspect there's a mission field in your backyard. I would suspect there's people around you. The mission that Jesus gave the disciples had geographic destinations. It said, stay in Jerusalem, then it'll go to Judea, then it'll advance, and then it'll go to the end of the world. So find your Judea. Find your Jerusalem. Tomorrow, some of you are going to work. Some of you are going to school. Some of you are going to hang out with a friend who wasn't here today because they're not a believer. And let me remind you of how incredibly impactful and transformative the message of the gospel is. Earlier this morning, I sat in Keith's office. Bill Treby came in and we prayed together as men always do for every Sunday. And sitting on his desk, some of you know this story, I didn't. Sitting on his desk was this little book. A little Bible, a little New Testament. And it just drew my attention. And I said, Keith, is that yours? And he said, yeah, it's mine. And he shared the story of how he got this Bible. More importantly, he shared the story of who gave him this Bible. When your senior pastor was a kid in high school, this guy, by the name of Frank Loria, gave him this Bible. And for the past, how long have you been serving here, Keith? 25 years? For the past 25 years, he's been feeding us the word of life. Did you see what Frank did? What did Frank do? Frank grabbed Keith by the neck and choke him and say, no. He presented the message of salvation to him. And the Lord gave us a leader. A pastor. Some of you share a story like this. I do too. Someone shared the gospel with me. And I said, I'll go. I accepted. Friends, do you realize the power you have in your mouth? Do you realize the power you have with your words? Through you, God can bring life to a person. So stay. Eric, would you come up, man? I'm going to pray for us. Let me ask everyone to stand with me. Eric's going to lead us in a song. But there's a very, very interesting reaction that those two disciples had when Jesus left them. And they reflect on on what they had been taught and on what they had received. This is what they said. After Jesus vanishes from their sight, they look to each other. Luke 24, verse 32. Did 
not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scripture for us. Let's pray. Father, would you set our hearts on fire? Lord, we're not desiring a a spittering little flame. Lord, we don't want a, a, a warm fire. Controlled campfire surrounded by rocks. Oh Lord, we want the fire of heaven to come and light us with a zeal and a passion, reflecting on what you accomplished on the cross and what you have unleashed us to do now that you've accomplished what you did on the cross. Lord, we pray as Jesus prayed. Your kingdom come. But Lord, help us be those with hands and feet that take your kingdom to places it hasn't been. Lord, give us the honor and the power to be heralds of your truth. To speak light into darkness. To speak life into death. Lord, awaken us to obey that our hearts would burn with a zeal that repentance is available to all nations and we are grateful that you and your wisdom and kindness have included us as messengers of that grace Father, we are grateful for the many generations of faithful Christians who have come before us. We are grateful for this group of disciples who didn't stay locked up in a room, who didn't fear for their lives and chose to keep this message a secret. But mere weeks after the Christ was raised and ascended into heaven, they unleashed salvation to the world. Would you help us do the same? Would you help us love the lost? Would you help us seek the lost? Would you help us save the lost through the proclamation of your gospel? Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. And we pray that your kingdom would come. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth, till your song.
on our lips. Lord, let your kingdom come in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week.